It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. You got a question for me? Go to clark.com slash ask. You want to try to ask me that question directly? There's a box you'll see after you fill in your information. You can check that you would like me to answer your question for you. Otherwise, we got lots of ways that we can answer your questions. So coming up a little later, question for you. Do you spend money on bottled water? I'll tell you why in today's Clark Rageous moment, that is not money well spent. And yet later, a couple of changes coming in one of the nation's most populous states with new fees for being on the road and new fees for you that you have to pay when you shop. I'll tell you about it. And right now I want to talk about the most momentous change that's happened in the investing business in a long, long time. One of the most significant changes I can recall. And it is a new pricing model that has just been announced by Charles Schwab. Charles Schwab, the giant discount broker, which is a massive disruptor through its history. I don't know if you know this, the fact that ordinary people have the ability to invest and to save for the future is really possible because of two people. One who died recently, and that's John Bogle, who was the founder of Vanguard, and the other is Chuck Schwab, who in 1976 busted the cozy monopolistic world of Wall Street wide open and started discounting the ability to buy and sell stocks, which made him public enemy number one on Wall Street, attacking people's cozy rich lifestyles, and made him a great friend to everyday investors. Chuck Schwab himself is getting up in years, but he still has this big brokerage company that now has $3.5 trillion in assets on hand. And so Schwab just studies, looks at things, and looks for new ways to do things different than how they've historically been done. So the way it's worked in the investment community for a, quite a long time is that you pay, as an investor, if you want somebody to guide you, to advise you, you pay 1% of the amount of money you're investing. Now what that's done is it's made people who provide advice generally only available to those who've got big bucks, period. Because if you don't have a lot of money, the person who would be advising you isn't going to make any income from you, and that's why a lot of the full commission stock brokerages have shunted people off to impersonal not very service-oriented call centers to do business with them, and they still put them in junk investments because they're not acting as what's known as a fiduciary. So Chuck Schwab looking at it, how are we going to help the largest population group in the United States, which are younger people in their 20s and 30s who are now numbering a larger number than the baby boom generation, How are we going to help them connect to investing? So he came up with this idea 
where instead of paying a percent of assets, you pay a flat $30 a month to be advised on your investments. And so you use a combination of, well, they use algorithms to come up with proper investment formulas for you, and then you have access to a paid professional who you can talk with as you wish, and the unlimited guidance and the algorithms for your individual situation is 30 bucks a month. The more money you have, you're still paying $30 a month. Less money you have, $30 a month. The whole idea is for that amount of money, you have access to professional guidance and advice. This is brilliant. It is actually an imitation of something that's been around for a while geared towards millennials called XY Planning Network. But this is huge for such a small uh, fee overall for people as your investments grow over the years. Now, there is a gotcha, and that is when you first want to become a customer, you have to sit down with an expert and you pay $300 for financial planning for an initial plan to set up a path for yourself for your life moving forward. But it's much better to pay for advice directly than to go to somebody who is commission. You never want a commission salesperson for investing. Now, let me emphasize this. Never, never, not ever, no exceptions, never should you ever do investing, ever, with somebody you pay commissions to, period. And remember, there are no exceptions to that rule. Kevin's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Clark. How are you doing? Great. Thank you, Kevin. How can I be of service to you? First, I want to thank you and your team for all you do. I've only been listening to you for about three or four years, and I saved thousands of dollars. And uh, listening, you know, taking your advice. Uh, what, what kind of things have you saved money on over the last several years? Um, probably the big thing has been uh, kind of cutting the cable and getting most things um, through, you know, internet for television, uh, phone, UMA. UMA is a good example right there. And um, O O M A yeah. for people who think it has something to do with that actress, it's not. <laughs> And uh, also, I want to say that you, your people skills are amazing. I try to get my kids to listen to you, uh, just to hear what somebody who like has a gift, you know, sounds like dealing with people. But uh, yeah, it's it's really quite good. Uh, you're like the Joe Montana of uh, you know what you do. Wow, well, that's Brady's quite here. a historical reference. <laughs> I can't imagine being compared to the great Joe Montana. Yeah. So are you from but, um, the San Francisco Bay Area that you would give a Joe Montana reference? Or? Well, no, actually from the, from the East Philadelphia area. Um, but, um, you know, I remember watching some of those games, uh, you know, some of those amazing, you know, he's just an amazing quarterback. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, he was really fun to watch. Well, congratulations on your Super Bowl victory a year ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was fun. But, um so the reason I called is uh, I'm going to be selling my house in probably about a year, and uh, I was wondering what to do if I should go ahead and have a 
inspection done, um, and then I think I heard you say this once in the show, to have an, when you're selling, to have an inspection done, and then make a list of the things and also have estimates of the things that need to be fixed and be able to present that to prospective buyers. Actually, and, actually, uh, you have you have a great deal of the guidance I've said on that, right? But let me let me add some things to that. Okay. Okay. So I like for a seller of a home to have your own home inspected, usually about four weeks to six weeks before you're going to put your home on the market, mm-hmm. knowing that when the inspector you hire finds things wrong with the house, that an inspector working for a buyer may well find those things. And they will be virtually 100% of the time more expensive for you in the negotiations that come next than if you just went ahead and had your home inspected and fixed those items yourself up front. So I don't want you to say, okay, we found these 12 things wrong and this is what it will cost for you as a buyer approximately to fix them. Because you're setting up a potential liability problem if somebody gets in on a repair, it turns out to be more extensive than uh, you thought in good faith. You could end up in a hassle where somebody says, wait, you misled me. There was a lot more damage there than you thought, and so I want this money. I'd like for you to use that inspection report to fix the things that might kill a deal for you or be costly to you for getting a deal done. So it's a preventative, it's a defensive measure, and what I also like is for you to make your inspection report available to buyers, and then what you've done about the things in that report also disclosed to buyers. I've experienced my fiance selling her house, and the uh, the um, buyer's real estate agent uh, had somebody do an inspection and found termite damage that nobody else can see, nobody else can find, even uh, even the termite, our termite, uh, the termite people. But, um, but yeah, so I'm a little leery about, uh, kind of concerned about, you know, the uh, buyer's inspection and so on. That is an unusual, kind of like one-off circumstance that you're mm-hmm. describing. Uh, that is not normal course of what I hear, that somebody finds a phantom problem. So I wouldn't let that shape your impression too much. Okay. That's, I'd call that an outlier in that area. But I'd like for you to know that the more you deal with things that could cause somebody to walk away from buying your home, the more you eliminate potential problems by you taking care of them. And the sooner you deal with them, the cheaper they become for you or you net more money ultimately when you do get your deal done. Michelle is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Michelle. Hi, how are you? Great, thank you, Michelle. Your husband's buying a new truck. He is, finally. After Uh-oh. 21 years. 21? Of the same, yep, of driving the same truck. He had the truck before we were dating. He's finally getting a new one. Well, I like the way he handles his driving expense. That's wonderful. So he wants to buy a brand new truck and he knows exactly what he wants. And I've read on your website that you prefer to buy used cars, but he wants a new one. And if he keeps a vehicle 21 years, he should go buy a new one and just enjoy it. 
It's going to feel like he went through, went from the Flintstones to the Jetsons in one vehicle <laughs> purchase. It will be so different. So how do you recommend we go shopping for that new truck? Well, I've got a lot of steps that I like. Uh, first, may I ask if either of you are a member of Costco Wholesale or Sam's Club? No. Okay. Well, that eliminates one of my favorite ways for someone to shop for a vehicle because they both have uh, vehicle buying programs, and Costco, if it were a dealer, is now the largest seller of new vehicles in the United States. They sell. I am so a member many. of. I am a member of the other. Oh, big... BJ's Wholesale. Yes. I'm not familiar with BJ's enough to be able to tell you if BJ's offers a vehicle buying program. But if you go to to BJ Wholesale Club's website. Um, you'll be able to see if, okay, BJ's auto buying program, there is one. So I would look and see how their program works. I can't speak about it the way I can speak about the Costco or Sam's one, but I would look through their program first to see how they would go about negotiating a purchase for that truck. Um, Second thing, are either of you insured by USAA? No. Okay, because USAA has a great vehicle buying program. So we're eliminating that. Um, I used to strongly recommend TrueCar, but there are some changes in the TrueCar buying program that have made me more reluctant to mention TrueCar as an alternative. So what I'm going to suggest, does your husband know what vehicle he actually wants, which truck? He knows which truck down to the color. Perfect. So I'm going to give you a way that is a blend of some work on his part and also modern tools. So if he will come up with a list of dealers within 50 miles that sell the particular truck that he's interested in, that brand, each of the dealers will have at their website an internet salesperson. He should email that internet salesperson at each dealer, and ask them for their price, including all junk fees, he needs to say that, um, for purchase of the particular brand of truck, model, options, the whole bit, everything down to the nth detail, and what colors he's willing to accept that truck in, and just send that in to each, and they will respond back with a price, usually within three hours. Okay, great. And what about the financing? Just so wherever go to a, I can get go it. To a, go to a credit union. Do you have a credit union membership? Yes. Go to the credit union because credit unions tend to write a vehicle loan at a point and a half lower than a bank does and about three to three and a half points lower than a car dealer does. Okay, Don't great. tell any of the dealers. Make sure your husband doesn't tell any dealer as he's shopping that he's going to arrange his own financing because they won't give him as good a price on buying the vehicle if they know that. And if we want to buy the vehicle closer to home, could we... You can narrow that circle, but it's good to shop 50-mile radius and use what you find to then try to negotiate a lower price with a dealer that's closer to you that's more convenient, but you need that survey to try to get the best price you can. Today's Clark Rageous moment is something that more and more of us are wasting money on, and that is bottled water. 
And when you buy bottled water, you think you're getting something so special. There's a class action lawsuit right now against Poland Spring, which is the largest volume spring water seller in the United States, alleging that they're not even selling spring water. The courts will decide. But the point is that when you are buying bottled water, almost always you're buying tap water and just paying a lot of money for it. Better use of your money, reusable containers, and if you don't trust the tap water available to you locally, filter that water and save all the money. So eliminate the plastic bottles and just save your dough. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. So we got to talk. You may have heard me over the years talk about how I would solve commuting problems in the United States. And I have a really, really libertarian, extreme radical idea. And I know that as someone of libertarian tendencies, that is that fine line where you can't tell if I'm reasonable or crazy or reasonably crazy. It's all part of being part of the whole idea of libertarianism. So there I am. Although I wouldn't say I'm a true libertarian, but I believe that the way you deal with congestion on roads is you charge people to use them based on the demand at any moment. And people hate that idea. It's funny when, I, when I'll talk about uh, traffic and congestion at a speech, you see people, I lose people in an audience because they get very upset and agitated with me when I talk about my idea of tolling all freeways and go anywhere from paying people to be on the road and off off-peak times to charging nothing to charging very high fees to modify people's behavior. Well, now we're going to have a very limited method of that taking place in New York. And New York is going to congestion pricing, which has been done outside the United States and a lot of places. But with congestion pricing, it's essentially every vehicle on the road will be subject to a fee based on the absolute demand at that time. And what's happened everywhere in the world that that has taken place is it actually does significantly reduce traffic. That when people see that the congestion fee at that time is X number of dollars or whatever the local currency is, then they choose not to drive at that time or in that area. So in... New York, it's going to be a fee that will be uh, quite large at some times and other times basically nothing. But when I say quite large, if you live in an area of the country that has the HOT lanes, the, the what's often referred to as the Lexus lanes, the fees on those have, as people have gotten used to them, have been rising and rising in a lot of places where one ride can effectively be more than $15. And so that's the idea of congestion pricing is you let the demand for the road create the price 
for writing on the road. And it's the only method I know of to get people to change their habits about when they drive. And you may think this is, this is like, I'm clueless. Let's just call it what it is, that I'm clueless. Because a lot of people may not be able to modify when they actually drive. Well, I set on my phone, if I know I'm in a time of a lot of congestion and you're going to have high prices with toll roads and all that, I set my phone to avoid tolls on Google Nav or on Waze, whichever one I'm using, and I avoid the tolls because I know I'm already going to be in traffic. I don't want to pay that money, and that's how I choose to deal with it. But the idea of charging for use of a road to change behavior, I'm totally into, even though everybody hates me for saying it. That's fine. So the other thing New York has just done is they're banning plastic bags for almost all uses. And this is following up on a move from a number of communities in the country, states, Hawaii, California, have bans, and a lot of local governments have banned plastic bags. Others have gone to a fee that if you want a plastic bag, you have to pay for it. Uh, My middle child lives in California, and when I go see her, I'm so used to, you know, shopping somewhere and the stuff is just put into a plastic bag, and I walk out with the plastic bag, and people are so used to this in California that people just show up with some kind of reusable canvas bag or something like that, and my daughter will stuff things in every pocket and hand me things, say, stick this in a pocket, whatever, because we'll run out of room in the canvas bag and we're having to carry things. And it looks like a comedy routine, but it is something that is very important across the political spectrum of people under age 40. And so these plastic bag bans are going to spread around the country because people that are younger, again, regardless of where they are politically, see this completely differently than people that are older, and they are the largest voting block of the future, and so this is going to be part of how things work. Erica's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Erica. Hi, Clark. Your husband got taken by a scam. Tell me about it. He clicked on, he was on our home computer, and he clicked on the Microsoft virus, you've been infected, click here, call and pay $199, we'll clean your computer. He gave him control of the computer. And then a couple hours later, he figured out he got scammed. So we followed your, yeah, we followed your guide. And so we did everything that you said, credit freezes, the malware and everything. And then a couple weeks later, um, some of my credit cards that were stored on that computer, the numbers were stolen. And I was notified by a vendor that someone um, had ordered office furniture and they were shipping it to my home address, but they thought maybe it was a fraudulent charge. I kind of dismissed it, made my credit card company aware of it. They said they would reverse the charge, no problem. And then a fancy headscarf was ordered from New York City. Uh, Again, stolen. I reported it. But about a week later, the actual headscarf showed up at my house. And so I talked to the vendor, and the vendor said 
that the IP address was from 5,000 miles away um, and that they gave me the email address of the lady that ordered it and their phone number. Um, But the actual physical mailing address was my house and I received it. So I let everyone know, so it's being taken care of, but I'm wondering, what is the scam? Why would they physically send me something that they fraudulently ordered? Right. Okay. Let me explain that in a second. I'm just curious, what location were they in 5,000 miles away? All she said, the IP address said it was over 5,000 miles. She could come up with an actual mileage. So but not, but not, a, not an actual place. Okay. No, not an actual place. Okay. So... Uh, the IP address may have been phony based on a VPN, a virtual private network being used. It's okay. possible the person was wherever they said 5,000 miles away, but usually what will happen is when somebody ships something under false pretenses and then has it delivered to your house, they will usually have a runner tracking the package, and when UPS or FedEx drops it off, they are there in an instant to pick it up oh. before you even know it's been dropped off at your house. Okay. So All right. that's the most common scenario because with the ability with UPS and FedEx where they'll notify you that it's on the truck for delivery and it should be delivered mm-hmm. between 345 and 745 or whatever, it's created this crime of opportunity for criminals with a stolen credit card number to be able to track. And with what's happened, how many credit cards were stored on this computer? I'm not sure, but I know two were compromised. And I did the credit, uh, the credit fraud alert with the three bureaus, froze our credit, and that's still not going to help. That's still not going to help with existing cards. Okay. So be prepared that. Whatever existing card information was on that computer, the criminals have it now, and they may bide their time to try to use cards again or use ones they haven't used yet. So you just got to be vigilant with that. But your liability... Can I cancel those cards? You could defensively. Um, you could do that, contact the credit card companies and have new ones issued. And you may remember on my guide, one possible solution with the computer that was compromised by the criminals is mm-hmm. to use it as a doorstop somewhere in your house. <laughs> so even doing the malware on there and selling it... You I, still have a safe. risk I, that it could continue to have something on there that the malware did not find, and the risk is okay. still present. If it's an older computer, I would just junk it. Okay, I'll do that. Just because you don't want problems going forward. And do you well, think the criminals you. have your social security numbers? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I was involved with the Anthem breach, the Equifax breach. So, so they have your number have anyway. No All right. So yes. you're doing everything you should. You've done the credit freeze. Uh, you, you know that the credit cards are vulnerable. There may be other things that pop up from time to time. But the other thing is you've brought a very important warning forward for people. And my sister sent me a text this weekend that she got contacted the same way that your husband was. And Mm -hmm. uh, same kind of thing saying there was a virus on your computer and they were from Microsoft, blah, blah, blah. You just got to know that the whole thing is bogus. And now you've helped so many other people 
And the good news so far, other than hassle, it doesn't sound like you've had a disaster from this because of quick action on your part. Ryan is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Ryan. How you doing, Clark? Great. Thank you, Ryan. How can I serve you? Well, I just want to say, long-time listener, first-time caller, and uh, we appreciate everything that you do. Thank you, Ryan. Um, so I hear you talk about adding people onto credit card accounts as an authorized user to help build credit. Um, I have done that for my wife. Um, she had about a sub-300 score. Uh, I added her onto one of my cards, and um, we ended up getting her up to about uh, a 730. Now, wait, you said a sub-300? Sub 500. 500, okay. I was like, wow, how low can they go? So yeah, you right. were able to bring her from a sub 500 up into the 700s. That's great. That's correct. Um, and of course, you know, she really didn't have any or much credit at all. And now, you know, she's getting bombarded with, uh, you know, credit cards, uh, offers in the mail. And we went ahead and got her her own one. Um, so right now it's showing that she has two, one on mine and her own. And I want to, you know, remove her from mine to kind of get her more self-sufficient now that she has her own line of credit. Um, will that take her score down? Yes. Essentially? Yeah. She needs a second card. Okay. Before you remove her as an authorized user from your account, she needs to get one more. Needs to be from a separate financial institution from who her current one is. not She can have two visas if she wants, two MasterCards, whatever she wants this combination, American Express, Discover, but it just needs to be from two separate banks or credit unions. All right, so not go ahead and do that before pulling her off. Exactly. And once she's established with that second line of credit, then it would be fine for you to remove her as an authorized user, it will affect her age of accounts eventually, but she will already have established herself. She should use her credit cards very sparingly and pay the balance in full each month to do the most to improve her standing and raise her score. Should I expect a big decrease down from that 730? If, if she doesn't get a second card, yes. Okay. But, but the second card should keep her. second card should be what balances that portfolio and keeps her in good shape. It's really a Noah's Ark rule. You always want to have at least two lines of credit in order to establish a solid standing. So, Excellent. So you've done a great thing for her, making her an authorized user. You helped give her that booster shot. She's got her own credit. One more, and you can shut down that authorized user status. You got to go through the procedure. Each credit card company has a different procedure for terminating authorized user status. You need to find out exactly what you need to do with your issuer. Matt's joining us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Great. Thank you. You want to talk 529 college savings plans. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, my son is uh, going to be a freshman in college next or this coming fall, and we have he has about seventeen thousand or so in his five twenty nine plan, and it's not, not going to cover even a year. College is going to be about thirty grand a year for him, and uh, his mother and I are not helping, and so he's going to be taking out loans. But we were our question was: Is it best to use that five twenty nine his freshman year? 
or use it like a junior or senior year and let it, you know, hopefully continue to grow. Yeah. So if he's going to have to borrow money, and that's what you said, right? He's going to end up borrowing roughly a hundred grand for his undergraduate degree. Yeah. So if if he's going to borrow money, the interest, except for a small amount of it potentially, will be accruing from the get-go. And so with that being the circumstance, it would usually be a better idea to front-load the use of that 529 plan money because that would eliminate interest being carried at least on an initial freshman year for four years of accrued interest. Okay. Does that yeah, make sense? Because, because, you know, he's going to pay an effective interest rate on the borrowing of, is it around 5%? Right. And at that interest rate, with the way 529 plans adjust their mix of investments as someone reaches college age, the odds are that he will not be able to earn a return that would come close to what he would be paying in interest on that borrowing. Right. And that's why I would go ahead and use the money his freshman year. Now, there are people listening saying, wait, 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 what about financial aid or scholarships? So the money that is in your name being used for his benefit, it's the ratio of how that affects him is so minor in terms of qualifying for financial aid that I wouldn't fret about that. Right, and he is actually getting a pretty good scholarship yearly. Great. Assuming, assuming he keeps his grades where they should be. So um, if, he, if he, he's planning on working through school, I remember you saying something about paying the interest off to try not to let the interest accrue during school. Exactly, um, exactly. I mean, that's the same line of reasoning and thinking I'm talking about with the borrowing itself that by front-loading the use of the 529, you reduce how much money is out there having been borrowed for four years. Same idea from part-time work, that he used that money to defray uh, some of the interest on those loans so the loans don't grow on themselves, compounding. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.